It's good to see people here. Um, my name is Antonia Dawes and I chair the journal alongside the editor Irida Nicola, who's here tonight, um, the art ed editor Alexa Casper, our sound editor Beatrice Ferrara, and Ayana Smythe, who's putting together a review section for um, future issues. Um, Irida's here, like I said, but Alexa, Beatrice, and Ayana are based in Europe and the US, so we're quite an international group now. Um, and I know there's a few people tonight who wanted to say hi to Alexa. Unfortunately, she hasn't been able to make it due to work commitments and sends her apologies. So Critical Contemporary Culture was started about four years ago by a group of PhD students who had grown frustrated with the way that culture was being talked about within the academy. They wanted to start a dialogue about culture between students of the social sciences and humanities and other people who think and analyse culture, so artists, writers, actors, musicians, and so on. And tonight's launch is part of that vision, as it offers us a first opportunity to have a conversation about the contributions of the new, to the new issue and how they reflect on the phenomenon and conception of crisis in contemporary life. So the new issue has now been launched. It's up on the website, which is criticalcontemporaryculture.org. And um, we think that they really draw on the idea of crisis as a cultural, social, and an economic practice that is both global and local, historical and contemporary, public and personal. Together, they initiate a dialogue about the temporal and spatial na nature of crisis and ask questions about collective solutions to social issues. This event has been organised in collaboration with LSE Sociology Forum, which is a departmental group that supports student research interests and organises seminars, different events, and different events throughout the year. And we're very lucky to have um, Professor Mike Savage chairing the discussion this evening. So four of the people who contributed to the issue are here tonight to talk about their work. And I'm just going to introduce you to them quickly. Um, Alex Masouris has actually been unable to attend um, tonight, so Iri is going to read out his paper. Um, Alexander is a painter, printmaker, and an author of the, moderate, the Moderately Cautionary Tales. He's a member of Art School Educated, a Leverhulme-funded project at Tate, and he's exhibited his work with galleries in the UK and the US, including Skylight Projects in New York and the Royal Academy in London. Um, in 2010, he was shortlisted for the Gerwood Drawing Prize and the Gill Prize Fisher Award, and in 2011, he won the Pulsar Prize. His work is in collections at the British Museum, the Rhode Island School of Design, and the London School of Economics. Alexis Milne, who's here, is going to give us a performative presentation about his artistic contribution, which is called Riot. Um, Alexis is a London-based artist concerned with issues surrounding the contemporary political protest and forms of subcultural uprising and subsequent recuperation. His work traverses video and interventionist performance, utilising alter egos, the grotesque, and cartoonist parody as tools to comment on the erosion of the authentic, and in particular, riot as spectacle. Rob Oldfield is going to talk about his play, The Ward. Rob is a London-based actor and writer. His play shows that crisis can indeed be a world event, but just as often it's a private and hidden experience behind closed doors. In 2006, Rob had his own medical crisis as he was one of the six volunteers involved in the Prexel drug fiasco at Norfolk, Nor Norfolk? Norfolk? Norfolk. Norfolk Park Hospital, dubbed the Elephant Man Trial. And finally, Daniel Kochi is going to present his scholarly paper, Maggie, 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 Dead, 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 Kafka and the Dance We Did on Trafalgar Square. Daniel is a PhD candidate at Northumbria University, provisionally entitled A Thousand Failures and A Thousand Interventions, Deleuze and the Theatres of Samuel Beckett. 
His doctoral project elaborates an experimental research methodology and performs a series of encounters between a range of Deleuzean concepts, Beckettian theatre, and elements of performance theatre. Theory, sorry. His work has been published in the Deleuze Studies Journal and Beckett Circle. So they're going to present their, their, their work now, and um, Professor Savage will then open the floor for discussion after that. And I, I know that there's a number of other people who contributed to the <coughs> in the audience tonight, including Nicholas and Waiting for Nezia as well. And we look forward to hearing more from you during the discussion. Okay, thanks very much, and hope you enjoy the evening. because it turns an irrelevance into the principal focus of critical discourse. In evaluating work, originality should rank below any number of other considerations, like interestingness or engagement with contemporary context. Instead, those criteria often get buried beneath the anxiety that work might look familiar or might make a point that has been already made elsewhere. And when we evaluate work principally, principally for its originality and newness, we also mask the fact that one of the shibboleths of art is its relationship with previous art. Art almost def uh, definitionally contains this element of unoriginality within it. Most importantly, most probably though, crisis in originality can be connected to structural terms. Within the privilege of originality are assumptions about the, way, the value of rejecting the past, the conventional art, historical narrative, is a history of revolution, revolution. Each movement overthrowing the last with, with irreverent panak, panache. <laughs> Through these uh, original overthrows, we are led into a happy narrative of art historical progress. Although the narrative is a slightly unsatisfactory one, because it's, it's, it's characterized principally by a series of disconnected beginnings. A revolution followed by a revolution followed by a revolution. A sociologist called uh, Sigmund Bauman described the phenomenon much more elegantly. So to quote him, shifting attention replaces a sense of historical process with that of a collection of unconnected and inconsequential episodes. It, flattened, it flattens historical time into a perpetual present. We recognize very clearly the potential abuses of crisis in the political arena. It is obvious how devices like martial law can prolong and extend state authority when the normal operation of law recedes and how emergencies can be exploited to hurry through unacceptable legislation. My point is to frame the prominence given to originality in art in similar terms to these functions of crisis. The perpetual present and the tendency of originality to obfuscate, to obfuscate the art which preceded it create a discombobulating state of, art, of artistic crisis to the, extent that this, that, to the extent that this dismantles a useful framework for understanding and evaluating art, the preoccupation with originality is something to be aware, aware of. 
So the general point being made, I'll speak briefly about the alphabets of Babel. Of Babel. And I'm trying to make the PowerPoint move, but um, it must be the first one, just to have an idea of what. So is this, um, yeah, it's one of his, what's that one? So I'll speak briefly about the alphabet of Babel, which has been used in this issue. Three years ago, I made a series of etching on the, on the theme of an abandoned crush rate of knowledge. And this etching had on display somewhere in the London School of Economics wall. This series including an image of the imagined undermath of the library collapsing. The collapse was so total that the books and their walls themselves broke up, creating a debris of scattered letters. The point was to represent the violence of originality. The library was presenting and escaping its influence meant destroying the fiber of its content. After the etching, it seemed that this fragmentation could be more extreme. So I took, so I took a scalpel to a, set of to, to a set of letters transfers. The result, and I'm speaking of a more arranged image, not a cluster of uh, letters. So if you go to the website, there is another image which the letters are, are much more organized. And retain this alphabetness by being presented as 26 units, and perhaps also through a lingering familiarity of the time New Roman serif type. The collage uses a full letter set, letter set so, it is a complete, so it is a complete alphabet, which I think was important because, because when the code itself breaks down, its culture can nevertheless still identify it as a code. So this is something paradigmatically legible that has been made illegible, but which can be still read structurally as an alphabet. It offer it, I offer it as a crude metaphor for what I have been talking about. The new alphabet might proclaim its originality because its letters look, look unfamiliar, but they are the same letters, presented in the same structure, only rearranged. Thank you. I can get uh, I can get questions from here, but I'm sure we can discuss it. We have some later, later, later on. The next, the next um, presentation is a performative presentation, and it's Alexis Milk. If he's not quite ready, we might move on to someone else. Um, yeah, I mean, did you want to be the next person or still ask? Yeah. Okay. okay so we'll. Um, Okay, so um, it's been said that it's a play, but in fact I wrote it as a very short film. Uh, it's only about two or three pages to be honest. Um, and yeah, it, my thought, when I was invited to contribute, I realised I had a script, which I could have. And it's just about the interaction between the doctor and the patient. Um, quite simple, but in crisis realms, if you're being told you've got AIDS, that's a bigger crisis than the tsunami, in your own perception. And I was thinking about how, when we think of crisis, it is always, you know, it has to be massive. You know, the financial crisis, you know, um, the earthquake, and massive things. But I just feel we all have a massive crisis at some point, and it may not be apparent to even the person sat next to you on the bus. I felt that, I, I don't, it was mentioned, wasn't it, that I was involved in a medical research trial and it went wrong. It was in the newspapers and stuff. It was about six years ago. Um, 
I think I'm drawn to that sort of thing. I'm quite an explorer. Um, I didn't expect to go on life support for those weeks, but you know, I'm interested in finding out new stuff, and I thought I was kind of a contributor. Um, I suppose after experiencing that as a crisis, I think at the time I didn't feel it was a crisis, but afterwards I was quite aware of like how big it was. Um, but I think it, it just reminds me of how yeah, we, we can all be in crisis. It doesn't need to be such a massive thing. You know, I think it's very scalable. Um, I made an example to myself about how you, know, you may be on the tube sometimes and um, it's delayed and it's because it says, you know, there's somebody under the train. And you hear people on the tube and they're like, oh. it's like, that person's dead and you're worried about getting back for extenders. You know? And I was pondering on it and I thought, you know, when I've been in that situation, which has only been about twice, I kind of felt honoured to have witnessed that inconvenience because that person's life has, you know, culminated into killing themselves. So, it's not really like I've got a huge amount to say about the subject, but I just think whenever you do see somebody on the bus who looks a bit miserable, it might be you one day, and it might be because you just had some terrible news. So, you know, maybe just throw that person a quick smile, and it might make all the difference. Okay, so, so the scenario in the script is um, uh, like a hospital would witness many crises throughout the day, like a little cubicle where, you know, A&E, you know, how many people go in there day in and day out, and, you know, if you could, if you could be a fly on the wall, you'd probably witness thousands of crises every week. Um, and and I had this idea about this guy, he's gone in there, he's he'd beaten up, and um, it turns out that he's not a dangerous person, he just tried to help somebody, it went wrong. Um, and it's about the interaction between these two males who don't know each other, but there's that human connection and like the love of humanity, if you want to put it cheesy. Um, and the doctor really does feel compassion to this person because um, he's been beaten up by trying to rescue another kid who's being beaten up. Well, the final moments of the film is the blood test has come back. Oh, by the way, the, the guy has, he was being a bit... Um, Overzealous because he had just split up with his girlfriend, so he was happy to go and like put himself in danger. You know, when you feel like you want to kill yourself, perhaps I don't know. So he he gets himself hurt by trying to protect somebody because he was upset about his breakup. And the final moments of the film is the doctor reveals that his blood is is damaged. He's got HIV, and it's obviously the girl who's been cheating on him. Um, in fact. I would probably cut that out of the script. I think I would leave it that the guy says, I've got some news about your blood, and then it fades, and then we end the film. I don't think you need to know what it was that the kid's got, the guy's got. I just think it was probably more powerful if you're left wondering, what is this problem with his blood? And so it's more about um, you know, like the stack of things that can kind of happen and press you down, and it's all just one thing after another. And we all experience that, you know, you, you're, you're late for work, you get to work, there's problems, and, you know, then you get home and, you know, your wife's cheating on you. I don't know. 
but basically that was that was the theme of the, the short film. Very short film. It would just be, um, you know, it, it starts off in like slow motion with blood being taken, very shallow focus. Um, then it would kind of pace up into normal speed, and then at the end of the film, it would again go back into that dream state of that very shallow focus and the slow motion, which would just be to say, you know, the camera then floats off to another room in the hospital, and you would hear another story just as powerful, then you move on again. And just kind of saying how, you know, there's this kind of cycle of crisis that's happening everywhere right now. And that's all I can tell you. Thank you. <laughs> Antonio. Yes. <laughs> um, so, on the 8th of April this year, Margaret Thatcher died. And on the following Saturday, um, thousands gathered in Trafalgar Square and held what became known as the Thatcher Death Party. Um, happening to be in London, I uh, joined the crowd that was standing, staring, shouting, dancing in pouring waves. And this experience was at once invigorating and deeply disquieting. I realised I didn't know what to call the event I'd been part of. The event provoked, if you like, a certain crisis of thought. I found myself incapable of thinking the event. Returning to a friend's house that evening, however, I, came I found myself rereading a story by Kafka, uh, whose title is variously translated as A Leaf from the Past or An Old Manuscript. And I sensed that something within Kafka's tale was helping me think Trafalgar Square. To keep this thought from escaping, I began to write. And the text that eventually emerged is the essay that will appear in critical contemporary culture. And this essay in its entirety is rather long, certainly too long for me to share it with you tonight. So I've selected a few passages and kind of reworked them. Um, and hopefully these passages will express this sense of a crisis of thought and also a broader sense of social crisis encountered in Trafalgar Square. And I should point out it's not really an academic essay, it's something more like a piece of prose but a piece of prose written by somebody who's kind of had their head stuck in fairy for quite a long time. So, to begin. There are times such as this, when writing becomes a necessity. I am in an empty house, which is not my own. At a loss for words, I find myself gazing open-mouthed at bookshelves. Kafka, in an unfamiliar edition, and now I realise an unfamiliar translation. Turning its pages, I discover a tale whose title I must have forgotten. The story itself, such as it is, being the brief testimony of a shoemaker who finds his country inexplicably overrun by a nomadic northern tribe, I remember quite well. As I read it, that is, I remember it quite well. But the title I had forgotten. In any case, I read. How they have done it, I do not know, but they have pushed right through to the capital, which is a very long way indeed from the frontier. Anyway, here they are, and there seems to be more of them each day. From his first words, Kafka's shoemaker has resigned to his country's fate. He begins, It would seem that there is much about the defence of our fatherland, which has been neglected, and ends with the nation's emperor and his guards withdrawn into their palaces. The salvation of our fatherland is left to us craftsmen and tradespeople. But we are not equal to such a task, nor indeed have we ever claimed to be capable of it. This is a misunderstanding, and it is proving the ruin of us. His whole life, Kafka Shoemaker must have believed, without pausing to consider it, that his rulers and their armies would protect him. Now, with the nomads encamped in every doorway of his city, the law in which he had always entrusted has simply melted away. What is most unnerving in Kafka's tales is just how quickly his people adjust to their new realities. What was unimaginable becomes undeniable fact. 
Frank Gregor in The Metamorphosis, or Joseph Kay in The Triumph, Kafka Shoemaker awaits to discover that he must now make do and get on in a world quite unlike the one left behind the night before. Kafka Shoemaker has no anger towards the nomads. A sensible man, and Kafka's heroes are always sensible men, cannot be angry with something he cannot even begin to understand. It is all a great misunderstanding. Something has gone wrong. But this something, like the broken chromosome that disfigures Gregor's DNA, is buried too deeply in the fabric of reality. Whatever it is that has happened and is happening, it remains as inexplicable as the nomads themselves. Conversation with the nomads is impossible. They don't speak our language, and in fact barely have one of their own. Among themselves, they communicate much as jackdaws do. This jackdaw's squawking constantly fills our ears. They neither understand nor have any desire to understand our way of life, our institutions, and so as a result, even our sign language is willfully incomprehensible to them. They take whatever they need. You can't say that they employ force. When they grab at something, you simply stand aside and let them have it. There are times such as this when writing becomes a necessity. Kafka's shoemaker, living a language so different to the nomad's own, has hopes of neither understanding them nor making himself understood. He must fail, just as he must fail to act against them. All that is left, and it is so little, is the writing of words that may one day be found. Reading his words, I am damp and I smell like a wet dog. Tonight, for hours, I stood and stared open-mouthed beneath the rain that kept falling upon Trafalgar Square. This is a lie. Days have passed, and the first glimmer of a thought that compelled me a few nights back to begin writing has almost already faded into almost nothing. I am damp, and I smell like a wet dog. I cannot get my one little thought in order. Kafka's tale, I think, I began to think, leaves open strange possibilities. What if his nomads, upon entering the city, were simply surprised to find him there? What if their tribe, over half-forgotten centuries, had always passed this way, but found only open fields lying ready for their camps, forests waiting for their huntsmen? If so, how can one decide between nomad and emperor? Who is truly an invader? Kafka's nomads make a noise like jackdaws, and while I read his tale a third time through, I remember that Kafka's own name, if I remember correctly, could be translated as crow. Is Kafka, the writer who chanced upon the testimony of a long-dead shoemaker, himself descended from the nomads who once overran the shoemaker's city? This Kafka, with great care and labour, must have translated the shoemaker's tale into his own Czech journal, just as the Kafka I have been that I have found has been translated into unfamiliar English. First there was the law of the emperor, then, without violence, for there is no need of violence if there are enough of you, uh, there was the law of the nomad, whose children, like Kafka, abandoned their tents and became clerks in insurance companies and such like. Every revolution, Kafka once wrote, evaporates and leaves behind only the slime of a new bureaucracy. First one law, then another. But between two laws, there comes a time that Kafka's shoemaker is compelled to write. You wake up, but before you have even prepared your breakfast, you freeze at the clatter of horses' hooves. Two men enter your bedroom and tell you to get dressed. You find you have transformed into a gigantic insect. And it is in this time the translation becomes impossible. Caught between one law and another, the old world and the new, everything becomes one gigantic misunderstanding. Am I nomad or shoemaker? They neither understand nor have any desire to understand our way of life, our institutions. And so as a result, even our sign language is willfully incomprehensible to them.
If writers for the Daily Mail employed such erudition, they could borrow Kafka's phrase to reflect their readers' despair at the news of anarchist hooligans singing and dancing in the rain of Trafalgar Square. And of course, every community devastated by Thatcher's reforms could say the same of her own nomadic warriors. Our current leaders, seemingly so incapable of comprehending the lives lived by those for whom they are making all possibility of life impossible. We are all becoming monstrous, not just to one another, but to ourselves. We are becoming monstrous to ourselves because today there is no established opposition to the factorism which today goes by the confused and disputed name of neoliberal reform. Democracy, the supposed foundation of our law, has failed and we have failed it in turn. We are becoming monstrous to ourselves because it is becoming all too painfully clear that we do not belong here, that the law that has come and is coming into being cannot comprehend our hopes, our values, our desires. I do not even know who we are. Nomads or shoemakers, it is all one great misunderstanding. A failure to translate oneself into the law that is coming, and a failure on the part of this law to comprehend its victims. We are all becoming mistranslations. When I arrive at Trafalgar around seven, it feels like the first hour of a very English party, where no one quite knows what to do, and any expression of exuberance is mildly embarrassing. It is, in fact, very much like a way to help for someone whom nobody really likes, and whose acquaintances do not know one another at all well. Eventually, a voice prepares the chant, Maggie, 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 and a few reply, full-throated or half-hearted, dead, dead, dead. It's a little embarrassing. We are, I think, at a loss for words. The voice tries again, Maggie, 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 and again with vitriol mixed with embarrassment, dead, dead, dead. The chant is, of course, largely meaningless. At most, it remarks the established fact that has brought us all together. At best, it could perhaps intensify some sense of togetherness. But it does not. There's no we within this crowd, and we have no collective language of expression. I think back to all the demos I've been on since the tour is regained power. London, Birmingham, Manchester, Newcastle. At every one, the crowd was more or less at a loss for words. Throughout this round of protests, the vuvuzela and the whistle have been gradually replacing language with an insectoid hum and a bird-like screech. The voice tries for the third and final time. Maggie, Maggie, Maggie. But now only a few reply with their dying, dead, dead, dead. Whoever we are, we are, it seems, desperately in need of new words. And, as the sun sets behind the black clouds, I realise that I do not even know what to name this event. It is not a protest or a demo, but we have no issue and we have no words. Perhaps it is simply a party. Certainly, as drums begin to beat and dancers, lasers, sound systems appear from nowhere, it has something of the illegal rave about it. Whatever it is, it requires a transitive verb. It is a partying, a raving, a doing without final object. And what troubles me most, as both I and the crowd slide further into drunkenness, is, that, is this sense that alternative politics, more and more, is becoming only this more and more. We want chants louder, dancing more intense. We want to lose ourselves in vitriol and joy. We have met at the end of our worlds and we have failed. Thatcher's law is in the ascendant, and all there is left to do is to dance our despair into the paving slabs. It is no wonder that we look so monstrous. We are becoming nomads, excluded from the law, but determined for one night at least to retake a little of this city and publicly tear the symbol of our defeat apart. I lay for a whole hour flat on the floor of my workshop, with my head muffled in all the clothes and rugs and pillows I had, 
simply to keep from hearing the bellowing of that ox, which the nomads were leaping on from all sides, tearing morsels out of its living flesh with their teeth. It had been quiet a long time before I risked coming out. They were lying around the remnants of the carcass, like drunkards around a wine glass. But perhaps a part of every nomad wants to become a shoemaker. There must be something more than this more and more, something more than dancing to be done. And we can at least imagine that we remember a time when we could be something more than beasts gathered round a still warm corpse. Before darkness fell, I heard a cheer that carried a tone quite unlike any other that sounded that evening. It harped through the crowd, following the red trail of a national union of mine workers' band. Its carriers invisible, it floated across the square and towards St. Martin in the fields. A leap from the past spiralled above us and reminded us of a time when craftsmen, tradespeople, though they were never quite up to the task, defended their country from the encroachment of a nomadic lawlessness that was fast becoming law. And we attained, for just that moment, a certain respectability. Past battles long lost, redeemed for that moment, a present we were already losing. Tonight I will sleep in an empty house that is not my own. Already I am far too damp and a stink like wet dogs rises from my coat. But I must stay here. I must do whatever it is that I am doing. I must stay because we have no words. We have no leaders and no words to rally round. We lack very meaningful slogans. All I have left is my body and my capacity to walk and be somewhere where some people would rather I was not. The mind has failed, we have failed, we are failing still. I still don't know who we are, and whoever we are, this miner's leaf does nothing but reenact our failures. But the fact that we are here, that we still care that we have failed, and are failing still, that we still care enough to reenact our failures once and yet again, this is the defence of a great hope. Nomad or shoemaker, I write because I cannot act. I have tried and I have failed to express the sensations one feels when living between laws. I remembered some weeks ago, watching Woody Allen's Shadows and Fog, the film Another Failure, tells what Allen believes to be a Kafkaesque tale of false accusation in a town gone suddenly mad. Allen's great insight into Kafka comes in a troupe of circus performers, comedians, acrobats, magicians, who form one strand in the film's intertwining narratives. For all of Kafka's love of order, his practised elegance, and the sensible men he writes, there are also Kafka's harlequins, double acts, singers, freaks. In Kafka, the most precisely ordered bureaucracy and the most sensible of men are always entwined and entangled with fools of chaos and delusion. Travellers who trace great sweeping arcs and zigzags through offices and states. In Kafka, no man and shoemaker embrace and feed from one another. Elegantly dressed, they really are monstrous. Shoemakers becoming nomads, and nomads becoming shoemakers once more. Alan's greatest failure was putting himself in Kay's mould. Kafka's heroes rarely whine, and neither will they equivocate for long. Whining and equivocation being the hallmark of Alan's acting, his performance becomes a miserably damp squib. While the Kay characters in The Castle and the Trial lament and rage at the great misunderstandings that confront them, they are always acting and always in motion. Sensible men adrift in an insensible world, they never stop causing trouble. They open doors that should not be opened. They confront and abuse their judges. They kiss the necks of women promised to others. Of course, from time to time their way is blocked, or the air becoming too heavy to breathe, they collapse and faint upon the floor. But these sensible men, 
whose only desire is their law and order be restored, are chaotic travellers whose actions test and refuse the coming law that they cannot understand, and which cannot understand them in turn. <coughs> Maggie, 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 dead, dead, dead. Of course the chant means almost nothing. Of course it is grotesque to crow when an old woman dies. And of course one could argue that the coming law, Thatcher's law, is itself no less grotesque. We are all becoming monstrous, and we are all becoming more and more, and I am becoming more and more. And this is as it should be. Living between laws is painful, difficult, but it's joyful also. It is when writing becomes a necessity that it becomes a practice of joy. It is joyful because it grasps while failing to express. Kafka's circus trick of nomad becoming shoemaker, becoming nomad again. Every law must destroy as it creates its coming order, but it must also create its own sword swallowers and acrobats. Singers whose chants mean nothing but the chance that the law has not yet held fast. Dancers whose failures succeed only in hoping that somehow some new words might soon be formed. I am damp and I smell wet dogs around the corner. I spill Guinness down my trousers. My eyes glow red from hearing through the rain. I am in an empty house which is not my own. My heart beats too quickly. Is it times like this that writing becomes a necessity? I will perhaps have failed if these words succeed in becoming anything more than the buzzing of gigantic insects or the screeching of Kafka's black jackdaws. crisis issue and um, crisis and culture. Um, I'm not actually going to be showing a riot piece, although it is related. I'm actually going to be uh, showing you a, a, a sample, sample performative lecture, which is bordering on the, the ritual. Um, been making work recently involving um, my my roots, as it were, as a uh, being involved in hip hop culture um, from a young age, and that um, through it. Sorry. 
So bear with me while we just um, get the ritual space ready. This is a um, practice of laying down your lino, which we used to do in the um, mid-80s in a slough, slough shopping centre. You'd lay your lino down and um, perform break dancing opposite out, outside CNA or something like that. And um, perform what, what, what basically is a um, an art form which originated from the South Bronx in the 1970s. Difficulties aren't oh, nice. Just gonna let us go. Yes, here we go. Um, okay, so that this is an original piece up here called a riot. This involves um, uh, projections uh, of um, riots from the 60s, 68 till present day, and there's a kind of layered projection going on in it. Um, right, here we go. Again, the piece came out of visiting um, the G20 riots, um, sorry, demonstrations, um, and um, kind of getting uh, the feeling that you're in this impotent loop of uh, people not really being, like, just a couple of activists um, making uh, direct action and uh, police videoing activists videoing police in this kind of impotent loop. Um, Is there a chance we could yeah, turn the lights off even more? Even more? Okay, okay, cool. So um, again, looking at um, uprisings, kind of led me in my research into um, subcultural uprisings. And um, um, Robert Moses, who is going to appear now, he's a he's a very influential character in the South Bronx. Well, not yet in the South Bronx. Um, he built a famous road, the Cross Bronx Expressway. Uh, the Cross 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 Bronx. When you operate in an overbuilt metropolis, you have to hack your way with a meat axe. This is a Robert Moses quote. Um, this is a footage from the South Bronx. Uh, it was actually from a film called Wolfen, 
And um, as you can see, in 1960, between these dates, the Bronx loses 300,000 inhabitants. This is due to um, kind of sy systemic gentrification. A huge road is built through the South Bronx. Also, with the fiscal crisis, um, a, what happens is um, there is a uh, policies of neglect. A whole area is starved of its hospitals, fire stations, and um, general um, general infrastructure to keep it to keep it alive. Now, Robert Moses built this huge road, and um, it basically created a dystopian backdrop. And what we have here is the Cross Bronx Expressway. As God. Mosesism, 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 Mosesism. This is the Cross Bronx Express Pray. This is the pray that the. Uh, the Mosesism cult will make to pray and make their homage to Robert Moses. We over-identify with Moses. He's the he's the he's the bringer of hip hop as we know it. Hip hop culture. Hip-hop culture started in a seven-mile radius of the Cross Bronx Expressway. Here we have an aerial view. Now, the helicopter flies over Manhattan and it moves, um, it moves towards the South Bronx. You'll begin to notice it starts to look like a Second World War Dresden. The whole area looks like it's been bombed. The reason is, arsonists are invited in to burn buildings down. This is because it's actually cheaper, if you're a landlord, to have your building burnt down than it is to have inhabitants in there. And it becomes, it becomes a um, widespread phenomenon, and lots of films reference it from the period. This is one called Wolfen. And, uh, Again, you can see a dystopian bombed out backdrop like a, a Max Ernst film. Also, as a youth, as a youth involved in hip hop, we would see films, documentaries, Style Wars, Wild Style, B Street, etc. Um, and these films would always have some dystopian backdrop, rubble, and then a train riding through it. And this is what I ingested as a youth. And through the screen as, as my kind of as the, the beginnings of hip hop. You can see it here again. And um, I'm just going to do a sample, a sample from a, a CBS uh, documentary at the time. It's called The Fire Next Door, and it's uh, by Bill Moyers. And he's looking at the uh, arson problem in the Bronx from the 1970s. The South Bronx, it has all the superlatives. Highest crime, poorest people, greatest unemployment, worst plight, and the world's record for arson. <coughs> In just 10 years, over 30,000 buildings have been set ablaze and abandoned here. 
Many of them good, solid apartment houses built to last a hundred years. These were the homes of New York's working people, the Germans, Irish, Jews, and Italians, who paused here on the way to the suburbs and to the American promise fulfilled. Then came the poverty migration. Huge numbers of blacks and Puerto Ricans arrived as business, industry, and the middle class left. Jobs were fewer and fewer. A thousand jobs were fewer and fewer. 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 Welfare, welfare replaced work and the poor were trapped with nowhere to go. Higher costs, lower profits, and the peculiar chemistry of poverty caused landlords to flee their buildings. The result? A fierce, malignant urban cancer where the arsonist performs the final rite. And this is the rite we will perform this evening. It is the South Bronx arsonist rite. Which again references youth, my youth back in Slough in the 1980s in front of CIA. CIA in front of CNA. Mosesism, 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 Mosesism. We were up rock and then down rock. This is called the crazy legs. Once you've done your crazy legs, then you must freeze. Sometimes a head spin. So, there we were, in Slough, from the South Bronx, from a gentrified system. Head spinning our way through the 80s, and into the unfashionable 90s, where hip hop becomes unfashionable. No longer can you break dance in shopping malls or in discos, it becomes unfashionable. However, it does become co-opted. It does become, does enjoy a period of resilience and fashion. People start to become, people start to ingest the brand. Here we have on the screen, case two. Here's a famous graffiti artist who dies in the South Bronx. Case two, didn't have anywhere to play in his youth. Well, the playground was the subway trains. So we're gonna move on to subway trains. The, um, the theory that is coming up on screen now is a theory from broken windows. Eventually, if you, uh, once you leave rubbish on the floor, litter accumulates, people break into cars, break windows, and then 
Graffiti will occur. Arson will happen. Here are some quotes from uh, Baudrillard. Baudrillard was a big fan of graffiti art. Um, you can't really see him very well, but um, I think I've got them written down. Hold on a sec. A thousand youths armed with spray paint are enough to scramble the signals of Albania and dismantle the order of signs. Retaliation and reversal of the code according to its own logic on its own terms. It is an identitarian revolt, an anti-discourse, as the waste of all the poetic political syntactics. They reject every interpretation and connotation. No longer donating anyone or anything. As I was saying before, hip-hop loses its edge in the 80s, becomes commodified, becomes a brand. And now, we must perform the next sampled ritual. My Adidas! 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 My Nike Jordans! My Nike Jordans! My Adidas! My Adidas! My Adidas! My Adidas! In the last section that we heard previously, it seemed an answer was just a dance. At the end, of these periods of insurrection or some forms of protest, demonstration, ephemeral moments. It's here maybe that we can have just momentary, momentary release. You can hold on to something authentic that hasn't come out of an entrenched class system or repressive, systemic, culture-killing culture. It is here, within my Adidas, that we find the uprock, that we find the downrock, that we find the windmill, that we find the freeze. Once these actions and movements held some authenticity. They did emanate from a dystopian backdrop. We must celebrate with once more my Adidas! Come on everyone! My Adidas! Come on! My Adidas! My Adidas!
ankle-let hip-hop rest to do the final head spin to finish the ritual.
whole issue of the crisis of knowledge and the crisis of, of what it means to know what's going on and have an account of what's happening. I think one of the really interesting things about tonight is the different range of genres and forms being used. And so it's a very productive way, I think, of reflecting on. We can't just rely upon standard central scientific or journalistic accounts. We need to rethink out our repertoires of understanding. And as those, as those new repertoires can be, can be new modes of um, challenging contemporary power and, in a sense, using crisis creatively. So those are my sort of off-the-cuff thoughts, but I know you all have other things you want to put into the discussion. So who would like to kick off? I think your writing it brings a very kind of personal, you know, when you say that you, I, I write because I'm unable to act. I think, you know, this personal crisis is becoming so personal, I think, from all the responses that you got, it seems that people are, um, are feeling that it affects, especially nowadays, a crisis is everywhere. If you think environmental, if you think in a cultural setting, if you think in a personal setting. So I think, yeah, this is an, you know, I think your paper gave me this pessimism that I feel sometimes that is like, and what we can do, you know, even within academia or within art world or whatever, you, you, you probably can respond creatively, but you're still unable to act. So, I don't know, that was kind of my first note, starting from the personal crisis, but more broader socio-economic and cultural one. And um, I know that there are people from, some artists in the audience, which I don't know their faces, um, but if they would like to, um, um, I, I, I think, from the person who uh, is in the, in the audience? No? But Nicholas and Nessie are here. So maybe, you know, as, as you can just discuss your contribution a little bit and start generating the discussion. Uh, all right, yeah, no, I didn't prepare the presentation, but um, I contributed a play. Um, it concerns three uh, Georgian emigres. Um, who were in an old people's home in France um, during the five-day war um, between Georgia and Russia in 2008 um, during the Beijing Olympics. Um, and I mean, it's kind of about madness, really. So it's more of a kind of psychological approach to um, to crisis, but. Uh, one character um, 
she comes from a very noble background and uh, she still imagines that um, she has kind of powers that perhaps her family used to in the past, even though she's in a old people's home in France. Um, and she, she imagines that she's running the homes that was her home. Um, and she also imagines that the war is taking place on the doorstep. Um, so it's about her kind of response to, to the war, but also the other two Georgians around her, um, how they respond to her madness and also to the war as well. Um, one character is kind of in denial and another plays along with her madness. Uh, they're kind of crazy old people, really. Um, so, yeah, it's quite a psychological approach. Um, I, I didn't really prepare, yeah, something to say specifically from a sociological point of view as to how it relates to, um, to the concept of crisis. Um, but obviously it is very much about crisis. Um, but kind of a perception, um, yeah, is that okay to kick off? Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, hi, my name is Isabel, and um, she got a speech on stuff. <laughs> no, no, no. Go ahead, say what you want. Okay, um, I wrote a poem, and it's called It Gets Darker, and it basically explores um, different concepts of crisis in the sense of um, experiences people from like, different walks of life, like has little sort of stories inside it. Um, for example, there's one which basically sort of um, relates to child trafficking. There's another which is more personal about, you know, people dealing with um, growing old and how they feel about that. People dealing with um, illness, like terminal illness and that type of stuff. And that's the first section of the poem and the second section of the poem. Um, I basically flip it around and discuss issues where people sort of overcome crisis or so things seem horrible, like you know, a husband trying to provide for his family and can't you know get a job, can't get a break, but then he finally manages to you know break through or a struggling artist coming up and like that. And yeah, yeah, I just feel that those sort of captured you know the ideas of crisis, that things that seem completely impossible to get over. Things which seem bad, but eventually they get better. Hi, uh, okay, my name is Christiana. I'm, I'm a social uh, I have a bit of a, a provocative comments to make. I think, you know, you, you use the comment, you know, the title crisis, and I was just thinking, I really like all the pieces, uh, but I, I just think it's actually the problem, right, to call it crisis. You know, in a sense, we criticize something that is constantly making a spectacle of issues that are actually continuing. But we talk about crisis, we talk about the, this kind of push to authenticity, where it's actually there is maybe, uh, no, sorry, innovation, where it's actually there is not a lot of innovation. Uh, and they say crisis is actually a perennial thing rather than something as a crisis. And I, and I just wonder, you know, because of my interest, and I'm not there yet in my work, but I, I sort of feel, you know, the contribution of the art is still be on, on this kind of critique and pointing at crisis, whereas I sort of feel, you know, the more constructive part is really where to focus, and it's probably much more boring. And, and you know, just the wording seems to be needed to change, you know, rather than 
when you had, you know, a crisis or, you know, saying it's dead. I mean, all this kind of violent dialogue, I think it's very resonant with a neoliberal culture we actually need and criticize very much. And, you know, it's, I don't know, what do you think about this part? <laughs> So, in many ways, I agree with you. I think crisis is absolutely permanent. Um, I think, particularly, when you talk about the crisis of the left, this idea, the way it's kind of what Thatcher's death in terms of my article seems to, to have brought up for a lot of people was this kind of sense that you know, the war was lost long ago and that you know, the symbol dies, so we kind of reenact that failure. But this idea of uh, I can't act, so I'm right. It's actually a really good hip-hop frame, which is if your back's against the wall, turn around and write on it. It's like about graffiti, you know, if you can't do anything else, turn around and write. But make some sort of mark. And part of the idea of making that mark is that there is a creative response. It's not just about kind of going, oh, you know, we're in crisis, isn't this awful? My job is to tell everyone how awful it is. It's also about uh, the sense that because I don't know how to act yet, I need to do something. I need to begin thinking again. I need to try and think. And one way of doing that is to try and respond creatively. So, I mean, I've got, I mean just talking about my own work, um, like this was originally written, not really to be shared this broadly. It was kind of written really to win an argument on Facebook about people who were saying you shouldn't go to the death party in Trafalgar, you shouldn't celebrate Thatcher dying. And kind of really having this desperate need to express why I felt this kind of responsibility to go and also to express it as a kind of a crisis within you know, myself. But like having written this, kind of sharing it with people, there's a certain sense, at least amongst my friends, kind of speaking quite broadly, that some of the language in it helped them think and discuss, at least with us or with me, uh, this sense of crisis in a way that we couldn't otherwise. And so it kind of enabled us to think differently in a very, very modest, minor, not very important, but you know, quite nice way. Um, so I think you're absolutely right that kind of this you know, crisis is always an opportunity. It's always creative and it's, it shouldn't just be seen as something that we um, are kind of terrified of or that we kind of point to and say things have to change. It's something that change has to come from that. This is the change of perspective. I think also it's quite hard to talk about crisis without solutions becoming apparent or people putting suggestions in because it's rare that you'd complain about something or discuss something negative without somebody saying something to the contrary. So I suppose by talking about crisis, it does invoke um, response. And usually the response wouldn't be to go ahead with, yeah, it is crap. You kind of go, but... Well, what about the fact you point out that's not crisis, and that's actually a long continuum? Because it's not just about the news. Well, it is a state, isn't it, what's, what's happening, but I suppose it's... Well, then I suppose it asks the question, is crisis the response to it, or is it actually a crisis, you know? It's, which bit is the crisis, you know? Is it our interpretation of it and not dealing with it, or is it actually an objective thing, you know? I don't know how to express what I mean. I mean that goes back, goes back to the argument by people like Nagan, then, isn't it? That uh, if, if, you, if you declare a state of crisis or an exception, then that... That justifies all sorts of intervention by various kinds of powers. So mm. crisis can be mobilised to actually allow all sorts of quite problematic interventions. And the financial crisis is a good example, I think, or financial crisis can allow the bankers to actually yeah. strengthen their position in that kind of way in a state to put huge amounts of money in their direction. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
So it's interesting. But then I think the issue then is how you, how you use that most kind of quite more creatively mm -hmm. to uh, challenge that appointment. So, um, just in response to this discussion about um, the creative response and how it's briefly attaching to it, attaching it to the idea of an event, um, I'd like to draw attention to our contribution. Um, I'm in my own program lab, which is when you can go out there. I'm here with Francesca Kalei, who to do our contribution to the issue. Um, and it was about using, thinking about crisis as a vehicle for um, writing about objects and, and um, being an expression for writing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I think it seemed like a lot of this discussion as well. It was a kind of a playful idea about the sort of a system that our society has created against the idea of crisis. But the idea of risk assessment, which is just so broad and goes uh, everywhere from like health and safety to education uh, exercises to like private crisis, financial crisis, etc. So the idea of the risk assessment that you have a form of a template you can fill in and imagine, okay, how can I work, avoid the, the worst to happen? How can I uh, say which are the measures I can put in place and say, okay, the crisis will be avoided. So either way, maybe it's like in community to highlight how uh, the, like our society thinks that we can avoid crisis somehow. And uh, we did it from somehow embracing it. So we invited like a few uh, writers, and uh, she's one of the contributors as well, to um, filling risk assessment forms, but uh, uh, talking, looking at artworks and, uh, and research projects. So it was a way of uh, um, looking at uh, someone's ideas, for example, someone's research project, and say, uh, I think this is the worst that can happen to it, and this is. It turned somehow into a form of critical writing. So I don't know because on the on the website it looks like a critical your your idea. And it was an intervention in an exhibition that we did that was about disruption. So we wanted to disrupt the exhibition itself, just having those risk assessments by the artwork. Because again, we play with the fact that. Um, you want to avoid the crisis, but the avoidance of the crisis, it creates the crisis somehow, because like, uh, the risk assessment becomes a destructive element, even in, in art making, for instance, like some, so many artworks have been just, uh, uh, um, I don't know, the most uh, evident form of the example is the one of Iron Way and Tate, that written a few years ago, that uh, had this uh, um, beat. Of, uh, of clay that people were supposed to interact with, but then at some point the risk assessor came there and they said, no, the, the, the dust that can be provoked by the clay can uh, uh, provoke, you know, someone would sue us for that. So we need to just close up the artwork and people will not be able to interact with it. So again, the idea of avoiding the crisis, it creates somehow another crisis. So it's, it's just, uh, I think it's very interesting how we think that we can have uh, an immunitary system uh, against uh, crisis, and that's quite funny, I think. Yeah, and I don't know if I'm going to ask you. In experimenting with the expectation of crisis as a way of thinking, or as a way of approaching objects and designs and artworks, um, we kind of stumbled upon the role of fiction and all of this. Um, the expectation of a certain 
crisis or risk befalling something involves necessarily a kind of speculative process that turns in some ways into a form of fiction writing. This is my echo a bit what um, Christiana is my echo what you were saying. But I think um, one of the things that I've been thinking about through all the different presentations is the notion of crisis and the notion of trauma and how um, it became very apparent in Alexi's um, formative uh, lecture that I think we need to think through maybe the idea that crisis need not be conflated with trauma. Um, and Alexis' lecture, it was a trauma to the landscape for, um, I'm sorry, I forgot your name, for your play, or no, some sort of medical trauma. Um, and I'm just wondering if it might be possible for us to think about the fact, as Christina pointed out with kind of violent letter, that things are on the continuum, right? And so when we talk about trauma, maybe what we really mean is just pure indeterminacy. And that this, or excuse me, when we talk about crisis, what we mean is pure indeterminacy, that we've come to a point or a moment where we don't know what to do because we have all these other moments behind it, and we need to just get to the next thing, right? But need that be a traumatic event? So I wanted to know from the panel and from any of the other contributors if um, you have thoughts about the concept of trauma crisis. Um, yeah, I, I kind of, um, I like that idea, but trauma was traumatic background I suppose. Um, I think, I mean it was an interesting period um, when the, well just before the London riots 2011 when the um, student demos were happening and you know, the financial crash had just happened and there was all this kind of street protest happening and the occupied movement <coughs> happens and um, UK and Cup kind of emerge um, and you have all these different um, forms of kind of resistance um, to a kind of, uh, I suppose, a period of crisis or uh, traumatic um, occurrences. Um, and I think they are all, um, I know, yeah, obviously you just get these ephemeral moments where you get, um, uh, like, fissures happen and then you have these, um, it's kind of like mind uprisings, which always at the time seem, seem so intense. Um, and I think, um, I think what, what came out, I think what was interesting looking over that period is people like um, UK Uncut who were doing something quite kind of unspectacular in a way in, but with group movements and doing something which isn't, kind of goes against, I don't know, the performative like feel of what I was doing I suppose, but um, I do think, um, yeah, pr protests will move into a period of, of just kind of like mass um, not not so kind of overt action. I think just because it seems so easy to be um, thwarted now by um, by the state, etc. And I think it is um, that whole thing of like when there's those demonstrations during um, the, the financial breakdown, the student um, about student fees, etc. And the kettle started to happen. People, you have always this kind of counter action of, of people. Um, be a creative response to that, and it, it, even though it doesn't last long, it's worth kind of. I think it is worth holding on to, exploring in culture as fast as you can, and to kind of reclaim it as fast as you can. Um, and and yeah, I think I don't know. I mean, we, I know in this country, it's all like you know, what does art do? It's, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty pathetic, really. What what 
what it can you know achieve really I mean there's um, when you think of um, I don't know people like Borneo or whatever like Russian performance art groups and people that kind of will go to um, you know go to prison for their art kind of thing um, but I don't you know I don't think that ex you know exists wholly here I mean I know you have the Greenpeace but we have our activism in general where you do people will you know put their lives on the line but I think it is always finding those, um, yeah, the tactic or the strategy for that moment, however little and however you know effective or unaffected, that it just happens. And yeah, it was a good. I think it was, you know, that period was just amazing. I don't know if everyone else was here that and were involved in any of those protests, but it was like a continual, you know, cycle of um, like renegotiating space in the city everywhere. It was, you know, it was exciting. Is anyone there? Did anyone attend those stuck in kettles and running away from police and um, and just reforming and yeah, I mean, it just had a I, mean, I had an energy at that point. And then the London, of course, the London riots happened, and that's another kind of I don't know um, another um, I don't know having to absorb that that kind of crisis and that the, that sector all those young people wanting to I don't know becoming visible in the city as well, in that in the space. Um, so yeah. And also with the um you spoke about being recognised as a crisis afterwards. I think that's extremely important. Because we often don't sort the confusion there is that um it was the one recently on the fifth of November. It's like that's when the stuff came up it was called but it really on these last time and it was such a mess, it was complete. It just seemed like an absolute joke and there were some people pulling barriers and pulling back and um, everybody had a different slogan on the platform to say just no cohesion and um, I don't but I still felt like yes, as you say, in essence that these things need to happen and that this negotiation is important because it creates an energy and whatever that means at the moment, you don't know exactly what you're negotiating, but part of the negotiation is important. And um, I think we're really seeing the, 20, the, the effects of 2011 now. I think people are only realising the effect of the MMA, the grant, and um, we take away the, the fees, the reality of the fees is going to stay in, it's going to take a while. Um, so I think even now, us having this discussion is part of it. I just can I add on that because I think following on um, I don't remember the Christiana. So when we put the calls, I think one what we tried to do was uh, think of crisis positively, and I think that was kind of starting with the great meaning of judging, so judging the moment of of what's happening. And it was interesting that the responses we got were were quite you know quite good. I think we expect so there was this response. Um, and I think it, it relates to the fact that possibly when there is this moment of realization, you need this energy, which is unfortunately sometimes it feels very momentary. And then when there is a calmness, crisis is gone, even if it's still there. And um, you know, I don't know. I feel that sometimes even with Ryan, it's coming back, coming from Greece, so being there in the big energy, where in the big uh, demonstration in Greece, there is a big, um, yeah, big energy. These things happen, but this happens a week, two weeks, and then it's suddenly gone. 
and then people go back to their normal lives and the crisis seems to be away. So I think it's how they deal with this continuity, I suppose. Thinking of all the works. Okay, it's 8 o'clock. I think we should probably adjourn to downstairs. Yeah, so there's drinks and snacks downstairs in bar 53, and I'm going to go ahead and turn those on the door so we turn, come out of the, the building, near the building, and turn right, and it's a glass door right to your right, and I'll be waiting there. So hopefully uh, we'll see you downstairs and we'll continue the discussion, and thanks so much for coming. Thank you.